0: following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 945 or 1130 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. No one ever said that mountain climbing is a safe sport, but there is a particular mountain that is notoriously dangerous To climb. Some of its nicknames include the Killing Peak. It's also called the Savage Mountain. Some have called it the Holy Grail of mountaineering. It's the the one that, if climbers can climb this, like they are elite status, and surprisingly, it's not Mount Everest. Now, we all think about climbing. Mount Everest, it's the the tallest in the world. We even use that in phrases, you know, can you conquer whatever your Everest is? But in the climbing community, many believe that this mountain is much harder than that mountain. It's actually the second tallest mountain known as K2. It's known as the Savage Mountain, the Killing Peak. In fact, there's a phrase about K2 that goes like this. If you can climb Mount Everest, you're considered a great climber. If you can climb K2, you are considered a great climber by other climbers. It's, a, it's an incredibly dangerous mountain to climb. Let me give you some more examples of why this is, by some, the holy grail of mountaineering. Whereas there's somewhere between five to 6,000 people that have climbed to the top of Mount Everest. There's only a little over 300 people that have been able to climb to the top of K2. Some years, hundreds of people in a year get to the top of Everest. Years go by and no one is able to get to the top of K2. It's also extremely dangerous. Of those a little over 300 people that have made it to the top of K2, something like 10% of those died on the way back down. The ratio is something like for every four people that have gotten to the top of K2, one person has died. It's incredibly dangerous and for many different reasons is the, the weather. It's, it's technically, from a climbing standpoint, it's technically more challenging. The weather is more unpredictable. No one has ever been able to climb it in the winter months. It is very, very dangerous. Um, and in fact, here's a, a picture of K2 And you can see it in the distance. And this is from a specific campsite. It's called Concordia. And you have to hike like eight days. It's actually just a dangerous hike even to get to this spot. And before you get to K2, you have to camp at this place called Concordia. And then you have to go all the way to the foot of the mountain and get to base camp. But one of the interesting things you can see, I mean, what it would be like, this is if you're hiking to climb K2, you get to this place, this camp called Concordia, it's one of the first times you get a full view of the mountain you're about to climb. And as you look at that, that's an incredible picture, but can you imagine how overwhelmingly intimidating it would be to actually be there to look at this this monstrosity in the distance and realize that's what I've flown across the world, hiked days into into the wilderness to climb that mountain. And one of the most interesting things about this is there is one, I was watching a documentary where one guide who takes people to K2, he said on multiple occasions, he's had people fly all the way around the world, hike all the way to this camp, and when they finally see the mountain, they turn back. Gone all the way around the world, they've spent all that money, they've hiked, and it's not like someone just, it's not like a random tourist chooses to climb K2. This is going to be a climber. They get all the way there, they're looking at the mountain, they're so intimidated by how big and scary that mountain is and by how small they are that just seeing it on multiple occasions, this guide has said, I've had people just turn back there. See, there's something in, in our life that's not unlike this mountain. When it comes to anything that we're endeavoring to do, there's going to be obstacles. But there's one particular type of obstacle that we face that's particularly savage. There's one specific, and this is like whatever you're endeavoring to do, whatever the mountain that you're climbing, so to speak, is, whether it's, man, I'm I'm trying to live a godly life, I'm trying to to raise my family and do family the right way, or I'm trying to build a career or build a company, or I've I've got an idea that I'm, I'm trying to build or going after my education. Whatever it is that you're climbing, whatever that mountain is, there's going to be obstacles that we're going to face. And there's one particular type of obstacle that can absolutely rip you apart. And it's this one particular obstacle that a lot of people, even if they just see it coming, they give up right there. They don't even want to face it. It's ridicule. It's something that actually kind of flies under the radar. We don't all, you know, when you think about climbing mountain, you think of Everest. You don't always, if you're not in the climbing community, think of K2. In the same way, when we think of obstacles, there's a lot of things we think we're going to face, but there's something that will always come after us, and it's criticism and ridicule. And it's important to kind of break this apart, what we're talking about. We're not talking about positive critique or criticism that's coming from someone well-meaning. We're talking about something that's nasty. The, it's not well-meaning. It's not accidental. It's intent is to hurt, it's to destroy, it's to tear you down. It's something that in some sphere you've experienced. It's a friend talking behind your back, it's a coworker that's trying to take you down a notch, it's a competitor. It's at some point someone has just tried to take you down a notch, has just ridiculed you, insulted you, belittled you, tried to bring you down. It's it's from an enemy, not from a friend. And this is something, no matter what we're trying to climb, this is something that we will face. And it's something that there's a technique to handling. It's actually we can learn how to expertly get over this obstacle and it can prepare us for what's ahead. We're going to be looking at it through this series called Against All Odds. We're looking at this very catalytic leader by the name of Nehemiah. Phenomenal leader, accomplished great things, and we're going to be looking at him, and, he, and he's going to face one obstacle after another, and the first obstacle that he faced is just straight ridicule, and we see how he handles it so strategically, and we're going to learn how to handle that in our lives this morning. So if you would turn with me in your Bible or your Bible app to Nehemiah, we're going to look at chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let me give you a quick background to who this guy is. This story takes place about 450 years before Jesus, and it takes place in Jerusalem. At this time period, Jerusalem is broken down. It's in ruins right now, and the people that live in Jerusalem, the Jewish people, are attempting to rebuild the city, and specifically, they're trying to rebuild the wall for their own safety. And the the leader, the guy leading the charge is a guy named Nehemiah. And we're learning from really his autobiography. In a lot of ways, it's his memoirs. And so we have this really great book that's almost like a mentor sharing his story with us. And so let's hear what Nehemiah has to say in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry. And greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. Now, just hang there for a second before we get to actually what his jeers were. I just want to pick this apart a little bit. First of all, uh, I want you to know who is jeering Nehemiah and these people that are attempting to rebuild Jerusalem, the Jewish people. It's a guy by the name of Sanballat. Another guy is going to show up in this scene. is a guy named Tobiah. These guys. Are the enemies. They are the villains, the bad guys through this entire story. You're gonna see over and over and over again, these guys are trying to stop what's happening in Jerusalem because it's threatening to them. And these guys are not people who live in Jerusalem, these are guys who are leaders and rulers in some of the surrounding cities and kingdoms around, and they're threatened by Jerusalem becoming a powerful city again. They don't want that to happen. So these guys, it's important to notice this for the context. These guys are outsiders, and they're enemies. Now next week, we're going to talk about a different type of obstacle, which is dealing with the harsh words of insiders, And we're going to see what happens when we get words of opposition, hostile words from insiders, from friends. And to be honest, sometimes that's even more difficult. Almost always it's even more difficult. And we're going to talk about that next week. But it's important to break these two categories apart because you deal with these people differently. These are enemies. Sanballat and Tobiah, their goal is to tear down... Their goal is to destroy, to stop them. They do not have good intentions. You see that it said, this is coming from a place of rage. Did you see that? Sambalat is angry they're rebuilding the walls. It says he's greatly enraged, and so he jeers. And did you notice one other detail? Before we get into what he says, did you notice that it tells you who he said his ridicule in front of? Isn't that always the case? Whenever you're getting insulted, whenever someone is getting insulted, ridiculed, it's almost never one-on-one. It's always, how can I sow the most damage possible? How can I let the most people in on these damaging words? That's what Sam Ballot's going to do. Look what he actually says. This is verse 2 again. Look what he says. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, will he break down their stone wall? All right, so look at these, these words. When you first read it, you're like, okay, that, it's not that bad. You know, ooh, a fox on my wall. I mean, don't get too personal there, Tobiah, okay? It doesn't sound like that bad what they're saying. You're like, okay, are they really going to get that worked up about it? But I want to dig in a little bit on these because think about this: Nehemiah remembered that taunt about the fox so clearly that he wrote it down. Man, there you could be here and you're thinking about ridicule that you've that you've heard from decades ago, and you could almost repeat it verbatim. Because these things stick with you, these things are. Words can be painful, and I want you to pick apart these particular words because they're very hurtful. Sandballot says, "What are they? Look at these feeble Jews! Man, what are they? Are, seriously, these people. Look how weak they are. They they are a people that have been living in rubble for decades. You're telling me they're really going to rebuild this Well, you guys can't read? You're worthless. You're too weak to do this." I mean, what are you going to sacrifice the wall up? They're actually saying you're going to have to pray this wall up because there's no way that that's actually going to happen. I mean, look at these. You're telling me, you're, gonna, you're probably going to do this in 24 hours, right? No, this is going to take you. Do you have any idea how long this is going to take you? This is going to take years. man. And look at the stones you're working with. You're going to use these charred just pebbles, and you're going to make a, a wall back out of it? Now, Here's what's so painful about these insults they're true the most painful kind of ridicule is the one that nears closest to the truth they are weak people they've got no wall they're so susceptible they know they're feeble they're conquered people. They're just now trying to rebuild this wall. They know they need a miracle. I mean, they know that they're practically going to have to pray this wall into existence. This is, none of them are experts. I mean, you're talking, this is like farmers and jewelers and carpenters and, and merchants. And I mean, these are the people that are going to rebuild this wall. They're not experts, they're not engineers, it's not an army of wall builders. They know they're feeble. They know that this is bigger than they can do. They know that they're, they're not carving out perfect stone and importing it from somewhere else. They're taking this charred piece of rubble and they're trying to rebuild this wall. They know that this is going to take forever. And what's so painful about this is it gets close to the truth. Isn't that so true about ridicule? If you want to see someone go from zero to ten, you want to see someone go from calm to enraged, it's not the bizarre, absurd ridicule. It's the ridicule that gets really close to the truth. And someone blows their lid. And it immediately, it, it indicates their insecurities and what they are wrestling with. They know exactly, this is the, the thing that you start to really dislike about these guys, Sandballot and Tobiah. They know exactly what they're saying. They know, those don't may, don't may not seem like much to us, but they know exactly the buttons they're pushing. They're getting at their insecurities and their weak spots. Now look at what uh, Nehemiah does in reaction. Okay, this is verse four. Look what he says. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own head and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Do you hear what he says? Does he write a really mean, scathing text message back to Sandballot? Does he like subtweet them, you know? Well, there's this guy that's saying some terrible things. Does he does he get back at them? No, he he prays. And do you see what he prayed? He prayed, "God, turn their taunt back on them." Did you see that? This is really fascinating from a historical standpoint because we're looking at the first recorded time in history when someone is ridiculed and their response is basically I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. I mean, you're, you're seeing it right here, historically, the first time. It's, I, that blew my mind when I saw that for the first time. Not, all right, I don't want to minimize what Nehemiah is doing here. Do you see what his prayer is? He's saying, I mean, he's emotional. He's praying, God, get him. Turn it back on their head. He says, man, God, let them be conquered. Let them be pillaged. Let them be nothing. You take care of it. God, haven't they made you mad by these taunts? You see how emotional he is? I mean, these got to him. He's emotional and he's praying them through. Now, there's a, a pastor that sat under for a while, um, a man I admire, his name is Richard Farmer, and he used to talk about this kind of prayer because it's not a prayer that gets talked about, t- this type of prayer, a lot, but it's, you see it in the Old Testament. These godly men and women, they pray prayers like this, and he called them sickum prayers. Basically, they're saying, God, get them. Go after them. I, mean, I mean, make them hurt, God. Okay, Now, I'm not sure that it's healthy for you to like sit back and, think through all the creative ways that God could get someone back, okay? It's not like a Christian voodoo doll, okay? God, just take their pinky and break it. Okay, that's a good one, all right? So maybe don't do that. But there is something really powerful in this. He's asking, he's taking justice and he's placing it in God's hands. Why is that so critical? because he's not going to take justice in his own hands. He's being attacked and he's not going to attack back. So he's praying and he's he's not going to respond in his emotions. It would feel so good. It would make him feel so much better to just lash back in his emotions. But instead, he vents his emotions in prayer, and he's putting justice in God's hands. He's saying, God, you do something about it. And, and notice what he says. He says, God, they've angered you. You see what beautiful faith that is? He's saying, God, I know since they're attacking me, they've made you mad. And so I'm putting justice in your hands. You're going to take care of it. Now let me tell you why that's not only a helpful thing for us emotionally, but that's a strategic thing. Because if you, you can try and get revenge yourself, but God can do it way better than you can. You can just make them feel bad by your insults, but God can level them. And make them captive and take all their insults and turn them back on their heads. So he's taking all of his anger and he's giving it to God because he's going to respond without any, emotional, without any emotion. He wants to respond strategically, not emotionally. So he's giving it all to God. Okay, here's what else that this reveals. And this is so key. Man, we're, I love that Nehemiah in his memoirs, he's not saying... Yeah, they said some mean things, but, man, it just, I just brush it off. Man, I'm above all that stuff. No, you know, see, I'm just not one of those sensitive people. You know, I've got, I've got tough skin. No, that doesn't bother me. No, he's vulnerable enough to say, man, this got me. So we've got this phrase that we say, we're taught since we were kids. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. okay. That's about the most untrue statement we've ever been taught. Okay, if you're in a fight and you're throwing sticks and stones, how did it get to sticks and stones? Through words. No strangers just walk by and just start to pick up stones and throw it at each other. Okay, that doesn't happen. Words are how you got to sticks and stones. Words can do far more damage than sticks and stones. Sticks and stones can hurt your body. Words can wreck your soul and your psyche and your self-esteem for life. Words are unbelievably painful. And what's so great about Nehemiah is he's not pretending like, no, nah, I'm above it all. Like, I, no, sticks and stones, man, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't have, I'm not a super sensitive person. You can say whatever. I'm not easily offended. You know, what's funny is in my experience, the people that are more trying to convince others that, no, I've got tough skin, you you can't hurt my feelings, are typically the people who are the most sensitive. And the reason they're saying that so much is they're trying to convince themselves that they're not sensitive. And so the better thing is for us to be able to say, man, words do hurt. I'm admitting it. That gets to me. Man, there are people that know how to get right to me. And so instead of being this powder keg waiting to explode I'm going to take all that emotion and I'm going to give it to God I'm going to say God I know you're angry too so I'm going to put revenge in your hands and by the way that's also a reminder to never be the recipient of those kinds of prayers and never be the one that's casting the ridicule and the insults and have someone else that has angered God on someone's behalf because God's got children everywhere. I don't want to be that person. Let's see what happens next. Verse six. It's really simple. Um, it says this. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. I, I love this. They get in, he gets insulted. He gets insulted. They throw all these things that are just painful because they're true. He prays about it and gets to work, and they rebuild the wall. They start building it up. He doesn't respond back. He doesn't give it to the time of day because it's an enemy. He gives it as little energy as possible. He's not talking to everyone about how painful it is. He talked to God. He put it in God's hands. He's moved on. He's not going to expend any more energy. He talks. He, he just goes right on to what he's doing Rebuilding the wall. You know, when it comes to enemies, sometimes the best thing to do in the face of ridicule is nothing. I'll never forget um, several many years ago. I was uh, still kind of new as a pastor, and um, you know, I had had people say mean things or nasty things or lies or whatever. And but I I, it was the first time I had gotten uh, a letter that was truly, I mean, just mean. I mean, it was just nasty. It was a multi-page letter, handwritten. I mean, I could tell like there was like force on the pen, okay? It's like these scary downward strokes in their handwriting, okay? And I'm reading this letter, and I mean, they are just, through this letter, it was written to me, just raking me up. The, they had come, and they had heard a message one time, and they had they just they just didn't like something and they were just raking me up down all the coals, I mean, just tearing out my character and this and that and they get all the way to the end of this letter and they say, they sign it like this, they say, um, and don't feel the need to respond, I just needed to get off this, get this off my chest, um, you know, this was therapeutic for me. We well, you know it would be therapeutic for me is just to grab a stranger at Publix and just pummel him to the ground. Man, I'm sorry, that felt really good, okay, I, I needed that. So what do you do with a letter like that? I mean, just someone just wants to hurt someone. Well, I have a, a special filing cabinet. It's under my desk. It's rectangular. It's got a little bag in it that gets emptied once a week. I don't know where they file these things, okay? Certain places you file letters like that, you just, you know what? I say, God, I'm not going to expend the energy to respond to an enemy. Friends... A different category. But someone who's just trying to hurt you, oftentimes the best response is nothing. They're just waiting for more ammunition. They want you to get emotional. They want you to lash back. They want to reveal the chinks in your character because that's what they're saying. They're trying to draw out your weaknesses. That's what they want. And sometimes the best thing to do is no response. I give it to God. I vent my emotions to God. I put it in God's hands. God, you're going to handle this. I don't need to. I'm going to to get to work. You say, okay, but there are some times that you can't not respond. Like you have to respond. There are some times you have to respond. And I want you to see uh, how Nehemiah handles this. We're going to s- skip one, a-, a-, a couple quick verses I want you to see a later episode with the same guys. This is in Nehemiah 6, verse 5. Listen to this. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servants to me with an open letter. Okay, this is a whole another episode with Sanballat. In his hand. Okay, An open letter, which means it's not stamped and sealed. So it's like you put it in an envelope and you, and you don't seal the envelope so anyone can pull it out and read it. He sends this open letter and this is what it says. In it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem also says it that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall and according to these reports, you wish to become their king and you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. See what he's doing here? He sent an open letter saying, you're rebuilding this wall because you're going to rebel against the king of Susa and you've made yourself king over Jerusalem and he's saying you've set up false prophets to say that God has appointed you king. Lies. Lies to get them in trouble, lies to get them to stop working. Look what he says. Then I sent to him, so he had to respond to this. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. I love that we have both of these episodes one are jeers that are a little too close to the truth. The other is a rumor that is filled with just lies. One Nehemiah was able to say, I don't even need to, I'm not even gonna, just gonna pretend that doesn't exist. I'm gonna give it to God and keep working. The other is like, okay, this one I actually have to respond to. He writes a very brief response. Again, he's not going to let, he's not going to give any more time and attention and energy to this person that he has to. He's going to give a brief response and then he does the same thing. He prays and he gets back to work. But here's his response and this is so important. If you're dealing with an enemy and you have to respond, notice he purely deals with the content and not the person. He he still doesn't attack the person back. He never attacks the person back. He's given that to God, who's more capable, far more capable than he is. But he he addresses the content. And he said, That's not true. That's been invented. He doesn't say, I am sick and tired of you. You are a liar. You have just been sitting back there fuming because you're a little man in your little kingdom and you just are so threatened by what we're doing here. You have no idea who do you think you are. You are a wicked and evil person. He doesn't even address Sandballot. He doesn't even talk about his character. He doesn't even mention his name. He says that information is inaccurate. He deals solely with the content. Here's what I love about Nehemiah. He shows us the technique of dealing with ridicule from an enemy. First thing he does is he doesn't pretend like it doesn't bother him. He's not too big for the fact that words can get at any of us. But he he doesn't respond in emotion. He gives his emotions to God. He keeps his justice in God's hands. And then he responds only when he has to, minimally, and he only deals with the content. He never responds in emotion. And he never attacks back. Man, ridicule is some of the most painful, savage things that we will experience. It can tear us apart. And it can be the very thing that says, you know what, I'm not even going to bother. I, I, don't, I don't need this in my life. I'm not going to put up with this. I, I'm just, forget it. I can't do this. I'm not even going to climb the mountain. I'm not even going to try to do this anymore. I quit. I'm quitting my job because I can't deal with the ridicule anymore. I cannot put up with this anymore. A Christian, we don't have the luxury of living a passive life. He's called each of us to be a force for good, a force for love, a force for truth, a force for the gospel, and a force for his kingdom. He's called us to that so we cannot sit back passively. I want you to hear this quote by an author by the name of Richard Foster, an incredible Christian author, but listen to what he says. The mists of criticism Do hang about a mountain. Men who want no mists must be content with plains and deserts. Mists come with mountains. Soon the mists will evaporate and the mountain will stand out in all its grandeur in the morning sunlight. Multitudes will stay in the valley, for there are few who will aspire to reach the summit. Did you catch what he said there? Criticism to leadership, criticism to any endeavor that's worth our time is like mist on a mountain. You will always see mist clinging to a mountain. In the same way anything that you're attempting to do, there will be ridicule, insult, criticism. There will be people that are trying to pull you down. We're not talking about helpful pushback from a friend that's hard to hear. We're talking about someone whose intent is to destroy you. We will face that. But we're called... To climb that mountain anyway. What's the ridicule for you? Maybe it's a, a boss. Then, just the same way with Nehemiah, it, it's never just behind closed doors. No, they like to just rip into you in front of everyone, and they've told you, "No, you're worthless. You're feeble. You're never going to do this job." W- what's the what's the ridicule that you've heard that someone threatened by you, tearing you down? Maybe it's a coworker that wants to take you down a notch because they're trying to move ahead. What's the enemy? Maybe that enemy, if you're honest, man, that enemy's in my family. They're just trying to hurt me. There's a rift there and they're just they are just trying to hurt me and you're you're dealing with you're calling out to God like Nehemiah says, "God, I'm despised. This is hurting me. This is ripping me apart. It's killing me." Maybe it's an ex-spouse who's ridiculing you to your kids. And you're saying, God, where is the justice? God, are you serious? You're wanting me to not lash back? You're, not, you're saying, I shouldn't attack back? How is that possible? The things that they're saying, how am I supposed to sit silently? I'm trying to just deal with the content. I'm trying to just say, no, that's not true. That, that's not the reality. But how do I not lash back at this person? How am I, you're saying that I'm just supposed to sit and take it and absorb that and suffer? You're saying I'm supposed to just deal with that in some some prayer times? I mean, I don't know how I'm supposed to deal with the amount of anger and injustice I feel from the things that have been said to me. Maybe it's things that have been said to you years ago. And you can remember the precise detail, and it still hurts, and it's still haunting you. And you say, how long am I going to have to try and put this in God's hand and not take justice into my own hands? How long am I going to have to keep silent? You say, man, you're going to have to give me something else to strengthen me for that. You say, you have no idea what I've suffered, what kind of ridicule. And you know, you're right. No one knows what kind of ridicule you've faced. But can I remind you of someone who does? Isaiah 53, verse 3 says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, Did you know that every single one of the gospel writers, every single one of the biographers of Jesus in the New Testament, when they're talking about his passion, what he suffered, do you realize every single one of them made sure we noted that part of his suffering was that he was mocked? He was mocked for you and for me. And you know, the most painful kind of mockery is when it's nearing the truth, Right? The ridicule that's near the truth. And here's the incredible irony of their mockery. They only spoke truth. What are you, a king? Look at this king. Let's just press a crown on him and let's put a royal robe on him. King, let's blindfold him. If you can, if apparently you're king and you're God, then you can tell who, pro- who slapped you. Prophesy, tell me, who slapped you right now? And they mocked him and they blasphemed him. But you realize the irony? They only spoke the truth. He was the king. And he was carried a cross. And in all humiliation, he was stripped naked and nailed to a cross in a public place for all to walk by and ridicule and insult and despise him. And what was his response? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. You say, How am I supposed to keep silent when I've been insulted? How am I supposed to not lash back? How am I supposed to not be emotional? How am I supposed to give justice to God? because you're giving it to someone who's walked through it too. You're giving it to someone who's walked through, been insulted to a degree that we could never understand. It was God himself and us puny creation were mocking him, humiliating him and despising him. And you're giving it to someone who will walk through it with you so that you too can be silent, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Do you know, that story is the whole message right there, is that the king of the universe, the most glorious being, the being of whom if we stood before, we, his glory would so overwhelm us, we feel like we, are, we, we should die. And yet he was stripped, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was despised, he was insulted beyond anything we could fathom. And he took all that suffering for us. Maybe your impression of God is maybe you feel like God is your enemy. So like I'm here and I'm struggling with God. I'm struggling with, with you know I know that there's evil people in the world, but somehow it feels like it should be God's fault. And, and I, I feel like God's just up there, he's mad at me. And maybe God is sending these things into my life because he's mad at me. But you realize that's not who God is. God is so in love with you that he suffered to that degree, the mockery and the insults and the ridicule we've faced gives us a hint at the suffering he underwent for you and for me. That's who God is in your life. And maybe you've been running from the one being, you've been running from him with all that you've got and he's the one being in the universe you should be running to. Because he knows you so deeply and he loves you so much he's willing to suffer for you me encourage you this morning to run to him. Understand that he suffered. Why did he have to suffer? He was suffering to pay for our sins. You know what? For the times that we've been an enemy to someone else. He died for sins like that in our life because he loves us. And God put all the punishment for our sins on Jesus. Jesus took it so that we don't have to take the punishment from God and we can spend an eternity in heaven when we die. And maybe this morning, you can just simply accept that truth for the first time, run to God and find forgiveness once and for all. I want to give you an opportunity to accept that gift. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Maybe this morning that's you and you want to receive Jesus for the first time. Would you just right there in your seat, I just want to ask you to pray this simple prayer just between you and God. Create this quiet moment with you and God and just make these words your own words in your heart to him. God, thank you for loving me that much even though I don't deserve it. Thank you for so loving me that you suffered for me in my place. I give you my life. I accept forgiveness. And I'm gonna follow you with my life. I wanna follow after the pattern that you live, Jesus. Would you strengthen me for that? And in Jesus' name, amen.